like a trusted turnout jacket you've had for years, Flex 7 outer shell fabric delivers a perfectly broken in feel on the very first wear. Flexible, comfortable, and powered with the strength of enforced technology, Flex 7 outer shell fabric is made to move. To learn more, visit tenkatafabrics.com slash flex7. Flex 7, powered by enforced technology. Only from Tenkata Protective Fabrics. Greetings and welcome to the Women in Fire radio show. Today we're going to be talking about the importance of sleep. Uh, I'd like to thank Fire Engineering for allowing Women in Fire to be part of the radio show. Um, I'm Lisa Baker, a retired battalion chief, and I'm also the Southwest Region Trustee. And today, like I mentioned, we're going to be talking about sleep. So adequate sleep, adequate daily speech is needed to perform optimally and be healthy. Sleep deprivation is linked to with increased errors and tasks requiring alertness and quick decision making. Long hours often are associated with chronic sleep loss, which may result in decreased ability to think clearly and feelings of depression, stress, and irritability. The average adult requires six to 10 hours of sleep each day. Many firefighters experience sleep disruptions or disorders that stem directly from their work. With a job that demands 24-7 alertness and responsiveness, sleep is often put on the back burner. The effects of chronic sleep deprivation, sleep interruption, and irregular sleep patterns has been linked to the leading cause of firefighter deaths. Recurrent sleep loss not only has not only been associated with heart attacks, suicide, and many other disorders. So I would like to introduce my guest today. I have Lieutenant, retired Lieutenant Heidi Seinemann from South Metro Fire. I have firefighter paramedic Julie Nelson, who is also from South Metro. And then I'm going to have um, my other guest, Gabby, introduce herself because um, she has a very extensive background. So if she, um, I'm just going to give her the opportunity to... Um, let everybody know her on background. Thanks, Lisa. Yeah, I'm Gabby Whitmer. I'm a licensed professional counselor in Colorado. I'm also board certified in neurofeedback. And I've actually been working with South Metro Fire for the past almost five years now. Uh, and I specialize in helping the firefighters and paramedics and their family members at South Metro with sleep, emotional regulation, focus, attention, all these things that are nervous system related. Um, but really the number one reason why people come to see me in the office at the admin building at South Metro is to regulate and optimize their sleep. So we're going to go ahead and um, start with the questions. So, um, Gabby, do you want to just give us a little background on sleep? And um... Yeah, absolutely. So in understanding sleep, there are two important aspects that I, I think are really the crux of getting to the bottom of, you know, what is sleep and why is it so important and how do we, how do we support our nervous system to get good sleep? And those two concepts are the circadian rhythm and the concept of sleep architecture. And a lot of folks probably are familiar with this idea of this, the circadian rhythm, uh, but we might not always think about how sensitive it is and what are some of the things in our environment that can really impact it. Um, so the, the circadian rhythm is 
regulated by the brain, the suprachiasmatic nucleus, um, which is in the hypothalamus. And that's our essentially 24 hour clock. And that's going to impact our waking hours as well as our sleeping hours. And our, our regulation, internal regulation system isn't perfect. Uh, so there are a lot of external factors that are going to influence it. Temperature is one, light is one, our exercise and movement is another, diet, what we eat, what, what we supplement, what we put into our body, all those things are going to start to impact our circadian rhythm. Uh, so for example, you know, when it comes to temperature, when temperatures cool down, especially our core temperature, it signals the body to get ready for bed. It allows us to get into slow wave sleep. Um, and then when we start to warm up, our core temp uh, increases, it signals the body to wake up. We get more energy. Uh, and then when it comes to light, you know, overhead light, bright lights, the sunlight in the morning coming up, that's going to trigger the body to wake up while lower lights, dusk, darkness will trigger the body to prepare for sleep. And these are two of the biggest things that are going to influence our circadian rhythm. Um, the, the other aspects like exercise and movement, um, when we increase our core temp, so movement or exercise will increase the core temp. Um, that will promote a cortisol spike where, where we need it. And we might get into cortisol a little bit, but uh, in the mornings, we do want to see a cortisol spike for our energy levels. So movement will increase the core temp and will promote energy in the morning when we wake up. And that's another reason why one of the recommendations for you know movement and exercise is that we don't necessarily do it right before we go to sleep. Um, and then diet is another thing that will really impact it. This is kind of less in my area of expertise. Um, but the general gist is that like amount of food we eat, what we eat, if it's sugar or carbohydrates um, and how close we eat to bedtime, that can start to impact our sleep and circadian rhythm as well. So the circadian rhythm, this 24 hour cycle. The second concept that is important to understanding the foundation of sleep is something that's commonly referred to as sleep architecture. And that's really just the stages of sleep that we go through at night when we're, when we're sleeping. Um, so stage one and stage two sleep, lighter sleep, we're just starting to get into that relaxed rhythm and pattern. Our breathing starts to slow. Our brain waves start to slow. Uh, and then we get into stages three and four, which are slow wave sleep. Uh, you'll also see it as non-REM sleep, NREM. Um, so as we start to relax into that slow wave sleep, we see a lot of restoration in the body, both physically um, and mentally. We see a lot of like hormone, blood sugar, metabolism regulation happen in that those stages of sleep. And then we will go into... Um, and then there's REM sleep or rapid eye movement sleep. Um, this is where we tend to dream and the brain tends to be really, really active. Um, sometimes in rapid eye movement sleep, the brain can be almost 30% more active than when we're awake. So this idea that sleep is a really passive thing that happens to us is actually kind of false because the brain is doing a lot as we're going through these stages of sleep. Um, and REM sleep is really important for uh, emotional regulation. Dr. Matthew Walker, who's one of the leading sleep experts, uh, he calls REM sleep emotional first aid. So really important for that. It's important for learning and memory. It's important for uh, testosterone and growth hormone. Uh, there, so there are a lot of things that each of these stages of sleep are going to contribute to uh, every single night. 
So really important that we maintain this sleep architecture because if we're missing different parts of it, then that's going to impact our functionality the next day. And what's really interesting in my, in my opinion is that uh, depending on what time we're going to sleep or depending on what part of that circadian rhythm we are, we allow ourselves to go to sleep, that's going to impact some of this restoration and recovery. Uh, and there's actually you know, an interesting study that was done on sleep deprivation where they selectively deprived individuals of sleep and sleep deprivation at the beginning of the night. So you stay up late and then go to bed and sleep, you know, midnight to six or whatever. That sleep deprivation at the beginning of the night, those folks are going to get more REM sleep and they're going to get less deep sleep. But if you sleep deprive someone at the end of the night, so they sleep from, you know, nine to two, uh, they will get more deep sleep, but almost no REM sleep. So it depends, it is highly dependent on, on when we're going to bed that is, you know, allowing for the sleep architecture to stay intact. Uh, so understanding that aspect of it can be really helpful. And it doesn't just reset when we decide to go to bed. So if I go to bed typically at 9.30 PM, um, my sleep architecture is going to get accustomed to that. If I decide to go to bed at 2 a.m. the next day, I'm not just going to pick up where I left off. It's it's going to deprive me of certain aspects of that sleep. Uh, so understanding timing and, and that sort of thing uh, can be really important when we think about this idea of sleep architecture. This is such an important topic. Looking at um, an IAFF survey in 2018, it showed that 71% of firefighters um, state that they have trouble sleeping. I think this is a really common issue. How does your work with neurofeedback, how does that um, help sleep? Yeah, that's a great question, Julie. So one of the main tenets of this idea of neurofeedback is that we're teaching the nervous system self-regulation. So that self-regulation is, you know, the regulation of that circadian rhythm. And what I see really often, well, there are really two different patterns that I see when folks come in to me with sleep complaints. One is an over arousal. So we see faster brainwave activity throughout the day and they get almost stuck in that overactivated activity. So their sleep is restless or they're waking through the night or um, their higher levels of stress are impacting their sleep. So they're not getting good quality sleep. And then the second one I see is actually related to an under arousal and the brain gets really stuck on things and it's not able to shift. So the folks who have issues with falling asleep, with getting back to sleep, um, that like kind of low key rumination and, and getting stuck on things, that can be another pattern that we see. And when it comes to uh, deciding on on neurofeedback protocols for these individuals, are we calming down the nervous system to shift out of that fight or flight, that sympathetic nervous system and into that parasympathetic response? Or are we almost, it sounds a little paradoxical, but are we activating the brain so that it gets out of that ruminative state and can shift into those stages of sleep appropriately? Uh, so some sometimes people have both. So they've got a double whammy of, um, I can't get to sleep and then I wake up three hours later. Uh, and so we're able to find that middle that middle ground of, um, okay, I can allow my brain to self-regulate and be calm when I need to, and then wake up when I need to as well. Excuse me. So what are some of the obstacles that come up with 
first responders with sleep? Yeah, I thought Heidi and Julie, you two could talk a little bit about this since you know you've experienced it. Right. Absolutely. Um, I think for the first 20 years of my career, I was a relatively good sleeper at work. I always felt pretty lucky that when I was growing up, I I always um, kind of went to bed on my belly, reading a book under low light. And I kind of, I conditioned my body to know that that was like time for bed. And that really worked well for me for a long time. And I think, um, you know, you talk to so many folks at work that they're like, I think none of us sleep quite as deeply at work as we do at home because there's kind of always that knowledge that the tones could drop at any second. But I had relatively good sleep at work and I've always been a big napper, which I think one of the things that I really want to emphasize on this podcast is a lot of hope and strategy for improving sleep. There's so much kind of data that's coming out that is um, distressing, for lack of a better word, that sort of we're shortening our lives and that all the sleep deprivation we get is not good for us. And so I, I think for me, it was about, about four years ago, I started to really struggle with sleep. And I think it was the culmination of multiple different things. So I responded on a large officer involved shooting in 2017. And then I had kind of a rash of teenage and an adolescent suicide and then in 2019, I responded on the STEM shooting. And then we had the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think for me, there was just this <clears throat> gradual ramping up. Like when I initially responded on the um, Zach Paris shooting, I didn't fully realize at the time, like the implications that kind of that trauma would um, introduce to my nervous system and sort of this it really ramped up my hyperarousal. And I think that this is a pretty common occurrence for people that like when we are exposed to things that directly kind of threaten our threaten ourselves, we have kind of this norepi dump and this stress chemical dump. And it kind of, it encodes in our body and in our brain in a different way. And so if we look at the nervous system and so much of kind of, the response that we have with years and years of being the fire service is kind of this constant throttling on the gas where if you look like years ago, my dad did a ride along with me, like probably 20 years ago, stayed full 24 hours at the station. And um, I was working for the private ambulance then, but like at night we went to bed and he, you know, he got real comfortable and the first call got up and, you know, my partner and I were out the door and, you know, three seconds and, you know, I had to run back in and get him and shake him awake. And I think that, you know, most people are so conditioned to sleep. And, you know, when you're in that stage four deep sleep, that restorative sleep, it can be really, really hard to wake up. And over the course of that night, I think we had four or five calls. And each time we'd come back, you know, get back to sleep. And then he kind of kept leaving more and more clothes on until he was laying on the bed completely dressed with his shoes on. And he said, I don't know how you do this in the morning. And I think that there's this Pavlovian behavioral component to a lot of how we operate in this job where, um, you know, we're required to be out the door really quickly. And so we develop this hypersensitivity to noise and to light that, you know, we don't leave the fire station and just flip that off when we get home. 
And so I think for me, the first real step I took that started to help me improve my sleep was that I started monitoring it. And initially it was just through an app on my phone. I downloaded sleep cycle. And at the very beginning, my sleep efficiency was in the sixties. It was really, really poor. And there were nights where I don't think I was ever going into REM sleep. I was getting this brief, very interrupted sleep. And I think that this is, this is common for people. And if it takes us longer than 20 or 30 minutes to fall asleep, that's considered abnormal. But again, I think that that's another normal thing. Um, shit, you guys, my daughter just got rear-ended. Um, she all right? Well, I, no, she called when, earlier, and then I just got a text from my wife, but she's in New York. Oh, shit. Um, I might need to go pick her up. Oh, Why don't you mute for a second, Julie, and deal with that, and I'll take over from there. Okay. Um, all right. Yeah, hi. Okay. Um, so I want to just kind of go back to some of the stuff that, um, that Julie was saying before she um, was um, had to go away. Um, I think that the, you're, and I'm got kind of off track uh, myself, but I think that some of the processes that we can employ, and Gabby, I'll have you talk specifically um, about those, um, from when we go from waking up to these um, sometimes traumatic events to coming back and sleeping. For, for me personally, um, I didn't typically try to go back to sleep after very traumatic events. Most of the time, um, my crew did some debriefing. We kind of hung out. Um, maybe we would make a snack um, and, uh, you know, watch a bit of a show or something. But usually we spent some time just trying to get that out of our system and, and did like a mild debriefing before people were um, like, hey, I'm going to go lay down. Um, and not everybody always went back to sleep. And I thought that that was okay because um, – the debriefing part of it gave people some peace um, and, and and were able to then at least rest, maybe not sleep. And I feel that in myself is that we could at least rest. Um, but I think as an officer, being cognizant of when people don't get back to sleep after traumatic events, that what do we have to do the next day? Um, to Because if we're still on shift or even if we're going home, um, you know, whether it's, hey, so-and-so is going to sleep in this morning because they have a long drive, um, so they're not necessarily going to go straight home. Um, so there's that part of it. But then on just your routine calls where we don't have that trauma, um, I didn't, I've never been a person that has held that trauma when I went back to sleep, but I have held the excitement of it. But you, some people have very visual stimulus of what happened on the call. Um, sometimes I did, if I was in charge of the call when we first got there, it was very stressful. It's, I run through, did I do everything okay? Again, trying to talk to the crew on the way home to kind of debrief that so I could get back to sleep. Um, but I think that there was a few years ago, there was somebody um, that had come in a nutritionist to talk to us about things that we eat at night also that can stimulate that keeping awake or going back to sleep. And I thought that was a pretty important topic for us because 
when we do these debriefings, we often, like I said, have a snack or somebody's hungry or we want to eat or we stay at the hospital for a while and we do that. So what you're eating is critical. Um, and at the time it was the um, more fats and proteins and less carbohydrates to keep yourself kind of in a, a more mellower state um, than ramping up with sugary carbs. Um, but I think that having some tools, Gabby, to um, um, to help people release after that waking up and going back to sleep. Um, and then we can also talk about some of the things that we have every day in our bedrooms in the fire stations versus at home, and then things we can employ at home as well. Did I confuse everybody or did that? <laughs> sorry. No, I'm tracking. <laughs> okay. so, yeah, so go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. Well, what I'm thinking about, you know, that, uh, and I talked a little bit about nervous system flexibility, right? Like that's what we're training when we do neurofeedback, but of course not everyone has access to neurofeedback, but what we want the body to do is to be able to body and mind is to be able to relax. So there are a couple things when it comes to folks who definitely get that more visceral over arousal, that like restless muscle tension, anxiety, that sort of thing. Um, something like pace breathing. So slow inhales through the nose, slow exhales out the mouth about five and a half seconds on the inhale and then the exhale. So keeping that nice and steady and even that can help downregulate the nervous system to that parasympathetic response. Um, someone who might struggle a little bit more with like the heady anxiety, the, the ruminating, the like not being able to get their mind off what just happened and get back to sleep. Um, more of like a meditation, a guide, something guided uh, will be a little bit more helpful. And that is something that it's not really something that we can just pick up and do. Like that's a practice that, that would need to be implemented, I think on a day-to-day -day basis. But having even just a, a voice to, to think, you know, a podcast, a med guided meditation, that voice is going to help shift their attention and kind of unstick their brain so that they are able to uh, focus on something a little bit different and not keep spinning on, on the call or the fact that they can't fall asleep. And I think, and these are just two kind of small tools. Uh, I, I think there is some value to the debriefing, especially for the people that are over, well, for both the people who are totally overactivated, give some time before they even try to get to sleep. Um, and then, uh, and then for the folks who are stuck, like being able to get their thoughts out and to process it. And then also, you know, being aware that getting that sleep for that emotional first aid, uh, especially the REM sleep if possible, uh, is going to be really important. And it's actually really common that I see folks come in who have been habituated to really not get REM sleep, um, either you know, at home or at the station. And I think that's years and years and years of conditioning and disrupted sleep and all that stuff. So doing stuff like this nervous system regulation, the paced breathing, the meditation, like is going to work on that flexibility of the nervous system. So that sleep architecture remains intact. Uh, it's something that I see very often when people first start neurofeedback is that they start getting, they kind of overcompensate for that REM sleep and they have wild dreams and they're like, this is, 
is this going to happen all the time? And, and it's really just that overcompensation of, uh, okay, we're, we're rebuilding that sleep architecture and, and getting more REM sleep. Uh, so the breathing, the, the meditation, um, those are going to be two kind of quick things. Um, but I do think that combo of acknowledging and talking about what was going on and being conscious of what we're eating in that moment uh, is going to be helpful as well. So um, how does light exposure impact sleep? Yeah, so I, I touched on this a little bit um, towards the beginning, but our nervous system is really sensitive to light. And when we are exposed to lights, it's going to trigger the body to wake up. It's going to, um, you know, say, okay, this is in, in theory, right? Not necessarily for first responders, but those lights are going to be uh, our indicator that, okay, energy needs to go up. It's time to, it's time to get going for the day. Um, whereas when we experience lower lights, dusk, darkness, that's when we're winding down. Um, and, there are some sleep hygiene recommendations around light um, stuff that people are probably pretty familiar with, but you know, when we're in our rooms, when we're getting ready to go to sleep, uh, we want to, you know, maybe not have overhead lights on, put on lamps, put on lights that are literally just lower to the ground. Right. Uh, and then, and then we want our rooms to be really dark when we're sleeping, even you know, the little flashing light on the humidifier, we're in Colorado, so it's very dry, but the flashing light on the humidifier, like that can impact our, our nervous system um, or a TV flashing, or a phone. The flashing light on the smoke detectors gets yeah. like crazy. And it's, I mean, what do you do? That's, we have to keep that, right? But it gets yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, all those things can, can have, um, an impact on our, our nervous system. And, uh, you know, that becomes a challenge to overcome a little bit when y'all are responding to calls and you get toned out. And uh, Julie had brought this point up to me, like I said, the other day of we are, you know, driving the medic, following these lights, and we're, we're staring directly into the LEDs from the siren, uh, from the lights and siren, from the lights, not sirens or sound, but, uh, and that, is going to, you know, wake the nervous system. And I think starting off with the awareness of like, okay, this is something that, that could impact me. Um, and then being able to learn the things that you can do to wind down after that are important. Um, there's some indicator that maybe glasses, um, blue block, blue light blockers, that kind of stuff could be beneficial. Um, I think it also depends on like how much light exposure that's going to happen on that call. Um, and it, it wouldn't be the end all be all, but it would be a little tool that could help. Um, Julie tells this story of when she grabbed her prescription sunglasses instead of her regular glasses. And even that was helpful. Um, I think, you know, if, if someone's driving the truck or driving the medic, that might not be the best solution. So, you know, the, the clear blue blockers or something like that, to help with um, decreasing the exposure to that light could be a good option for folks as well. And then knowing like when you get to the station, um, turning down the like, I, and I don't know, maybe either of you could speak to this, but like if you come back and everyone's in the kitchen and the light, the overhead lights go on, like probably not the most helpful routine either. Uh, um, 
but I actually don't know if that happens at all. So I think one of the things with station design could be, you know, we we're, South Metro has done a lot to um, to address some issues with sleep in our bedrooms, um, not necessarily as station design, but we're building new stations all the time. So um, I think that just overhead LED lights um, or fluorescent lights, excuse me, are just so disruptive as are LED um, can lights. Um, and that is just the direction, unfortunately, that we are going in in all architectural industry. Um, but I think that there's probably some filters or something that we could help just with our daily exposure to that type of light. Often you see people that have that in, in their offices and their office lights are always off because they don't want exposure to those lights. Um, and I... I also did that, Gabby, I saw that you pointed to you doing that. I did that by bringing in my own lamps into my office um, and using those a majority of the time, and especially at night um, because of that exposure. One of the things that was in, that's interesting to me is all of our bathrooms are like commercial bathrooms. You know, these are commercial buildings. Mm -hmm. they're, they're built to commercial specs. Um, so employing nightlights in the bathrooms so that if you were sleeping and you just got up to go to the bathroom, you're not exposed to this extremely bright light. You're just have a nightlight. Um, so yes, I had my hello kitty light nightlight. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I did change the color of the bulbs though. <laughs> so I had a pink one during October. So, um, but I think that those are some things that really helped me. Um, and then with South Metro providing um, the new uh, light blocking in the bedrooms. A lot of people really liked that. What I thought was funny is I wanted them to go up um, around six in the morning or five in the morning because I like the natural light. I like to see the dawn coming. So, and that helps me to wake up with my natural rhythm. So I always kept mine open. Um, so I think it's funny. Some of the things we try to employ, which are good because it gives people choices, but um, that didn't always work for me, but light was a big issue. It's, it's so I've been now offline for about, um, I guess 18 months. Um, and I still wake up if a car drives by my house and the lights shine in my house. And even though I have blackout curtains, I can still see, you know, just that little, especially people with halogen bulbs or whatever the bright bulbs are, they drive by and, and it, and I wake up and I'm ready to go. Um, so that that's unfortunate for me. It's getting less, but it's still an issue 18 months later. So Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Like deconditioning <laughs> um that that signal. Yeah. I think it'll get there. I mean you made a good point that um, when we see the natural light in the morning, we know it's kind of time to wake up and such. And this might mm -hmm. sound like a crazy question, but like when you go to hotels, because, you know, people change time zones a lot of times, they always have those blackout curtains. Is that the reason for the blackout curtains? So that you could block out the light because you're going from like, like West Coast to Central time or Central to East Coast time. And the time changes, we know, maybe you could talk a little bit about how the time changes really affects our sleep as well. But you go to the hotels and they have the blackout curtains. And if there's even that, like, sometimes they don't close all the way and there's that little gap and you see the light in the morning, no matter what time it is, you're jumping up thinking it's time to get up. And it might be like five o'clock in the morning there just because of the light. Yeah. yeah, totally. I imagine that hotels in general, too, are usually in 
like commercial area. So they're trying to keep out like floodlights and that kind of stuff. So people can actually sleep. Yeah. Uh, changing time zones can be really disruptive to their circadian rhythm. Uh, and, and trying to continue to eat on scheduled times and go to bed at, you know, to adjust to that time zone can be really important. Um, there's a little bit of info on, you know, melatonin might actually be beneficial for time zones, but um, melatonin in general for people, people under the age of 60 um, is not the most helpful thing that we can do for our sleep. Uh, but that <laughs> getting a little off topic with that. Uh, I think that, yeah, with hotels and allowing us to block out the light as much as we possibly can um, in order to stay asleep and then also adjust to the time zone totally makes sense um, because we want to be able to regulate that light uh, since it has such an impact on our circadian rhythm. And um, in, in addition to that too, um, light can also light producing things. I was looking for a better word than things, but it did not come to my mind, but devices, right? Computers, phones, all of these things are also going to produce light. So being aware of our usage there. So not only just environment, but, but what we're doing and what we're engaging ourselves uh, with uh, towards the end of the evening can be really important too. Um, and then, you know, in the morning, um, natural light is best. So to get outside, even it, like fully outside, like opening the window is great, but to be able to get outside and, and be exposed to that natural light um, can be hugely beneficial. Um, one of probably the worst things that we can do, and this is more related to our energy levels throughout the day, but one of the worst things that we could do is pick up our phone and start looking at our phone in the dark room because uh, that's going to start to impact dopamine. It's going to start to impact you know our, our energy levels. Uh, and our, potentially our anxiety, um, but being able to regulate our environment by with blackout curtains, with uh, with lamps, with lights, that kind of stuff, and then um, exposing ourselves to light in the morning can be a really, really powerful tool. Um, I know we hit on this a little bit, but um, what other factors impact sleep, like alcohol, sleep anxiety, or yeah. Um, there are a ton, right? It's it's <laughs> sometimes a tricky balance to understand, okay, all of this is going to impact my sleep. How do I optimize it? Um, I, I doc, Dr. Matthew Walker, he wrote Why We Sleep. It's a really good resource. Um, he really talks about how alcohol is one of the worst things that we can do for our sleep. Um, one, because it's a sedative. And there's actually a big difference between being sedated and sleeping. And when we're asleep, I had mentioned in talking about sleep architecture, when we're asleep, our brain is actually really active. It is actively restoring and resetting. It is actively consolidating memories. It is actively doing that emotional regulation aspect. Um, but when we, when we drink alcohol, when we're at, when we take a Benadryl, for example, like our brain is actually being sedated and it is impacting that sleep architecture. So a lot of people will say like, man, when I have a drink, I feel like I fall asleep so much quicker. And that probably is the experience, but they're, they're being sedated quicker. They're not actually falling asleep quicker. They're losing consciousness quicker. Um, so that alcohol consumption really will, will fragment the sleep a lot. 
and we'll see some activation of the autonomic nervous system. So essentially that fight or flight response, and you're going to wake more often through the night. Um, so sleep is less continuous. And then we tend to see a decrease in, in REM sleep. Uh, so that can impact decision-making and, and attention and memory the next day. Uh, so alcohol can have a huge impact on sleep. Um, some of the data indicates that even one glass of wine at dinner uh, will start to have those effects. So, um, you know, being aware of that and, and understanding how, you know, our own bodies respond to alcohol. Um, if we want to make sure our, our sleep stays intact, maybe having, if we're going to drink alcohol that day earlier in the day um, to disrupt our, our rhythm a little bit less. Uh, but it is one of the things that can have a huge impact. Um, and then go ahead. Sorry. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was just going to talk a little bit about like caffeine too. Um, Cause caffeine is also one that uh, I see, you know, being utilized a lot uh, and, and maybe you two haven't, you know, you will see that too in the, in the firehouse and caffeine is one that, can be used as a really, really beneficial tool um, when it's used appropriately. So one of the big recommendations for maintaining circadian rhythm health and really utilizing caffeine appropriately is delaying caffeine intake in the morning to about 90 to 120 minutes. So if you can wait that like hour and a half before having the coffee, um, it will allow the brain to wake up and regulate on its own instead of utilizing the caffeine to um, essentially clear out the aden adenosine, which is essentially um, build up in our brain to create sleep pressure. When we wake up, there's still some of that adenosine present. Um, and when we consume caffeine, that actually binds to the receptors in place of uh, the adenosine and the caffeine will effectively clear it out. Um, so we want our body to do that naturally. Um, and if we're able to delay that caffeine intake from 90 to 20 minutes, we can typically avoid a crash in the afternoon. And sometimes if we have the crash in the afternoon, we're more likely to pick up caffeine again in the afternoon, which can then impact our, our sleep uh, architecture and, and, you know, when we feel sleepy at night and when we're going to sleep. And even some people who are like, oh, I can drink an espresso in, at night and go to sleep just fine. Like the caffeine is is still impacting their sleep architecture. They just might not uh, realize it as easily as some other people, especially the folks who get a little bit more overactivated or hyper aroused. Um, they tend to feel that caffeine a little bit more. I think you talked about this a little bit, but um, sleep anxiety that might have an effect on our sleep. Yeah. Yeah. And this is something that I see a lot with the clients who come to see me is, you know, I, um, I've been struggling with sleep for so long that it becomes a learned pattern. And now there's a psychological component that every time I like lay down, it's like, okay, here we go again. Like, and, and I, I mean, even this week, I've seen like three people who um, we've been working a lot on that because it becomes this conditioned response. Um, and some of the more recent literature has indicated that post-traumatic stress disorder um, with a comorbidity of insomnia, like th that sleep anxiety can be really severe and impactful. But even those conditioned psychological responses of, um, you know, okay, I know this is going to be a struggle again. And then, of course, it's a struggle again. Um, so that can impact people not only at the station, but at home, too. 
And when it comes to the station, I hear like, man, that call just comes in at, at 1am and I know I'm done for the night when, you know, being able to adjust and, and get back to sleep is going to be the best thing for them. Um, and then when they go home, they'll wake up at 2am and not be able to get back to sleep and their, their brain is just up. Um, and for those folks, I tend to recommend like a, um, listening to something. Well, there are a couple of different things you can do. You can get up, keep the light low, get out of bed for a moment and maybe do a lap and come back. Um, there are some folks who even go as far as like doing some things that are related to their nighttime routine. Um, you know, go up, get a glass of water, come back. Uh, and that can help just avoid the association with laying awake in bed that can impact people's, you know, inability, sleep anxiety, essentially. Um, yeah. Heidi. Bobby, I um, I think that I'm a big believer in, you know, when you say you can, you can, and when you say you can't, you're also right. Um, yeah. So <laughs> um, I think that we get in that habit of, um, of it. This is just me. It, it, it's just me. I can't go to sleep after 1am when I wake up after 1am. And I think we convince ourselves, you know, I tell my daughters, if you say that about yourself, your yourself is going to believe who what you say. Um, so, and would you say that to your friend or your child that, yeah, you're right. When you wake up at one o'clock, you can't go back to sleep. So let's just go play or let's go for a run. So really it's that self-talk, you know, of, um, you know, okay, so I woke up. Um, but when you, to change that self-talk, you have to employ one of those exercises that you just um, talked about. And for me, sometimes it's actually getting up and doing just a small couple of stretches uh, because it actually just loosens my body up. Even if it's just a, you know, knees side to side and some cat and camel type stuff that is just relaxing, particularly to my spine. Um, mm -hmm. It just seems that it, kind of grounds me. Um, I don't have to turn the lights on and wake anybody up or myself even more. And I've found that recently that's been something that that has been helpful to me because I do still wake up um, at, at three o'clock. And if I lay there long enough, 530 comes around and then I fall back asleep. So but it, if I just tell myself, okay, let's get up and, and give myself some sort of um, you know, the glass of water, um, doing a stretch, uh, maybe walking downstairs and, you know, sitting on the couch for a few minutes and then going back up and trying again. I've, I've actually been very surprised how easily I do fall back asleep in comparison to before just laying there and perseverating over, I just can't sleep. And looking at the clock is a terrible thing because it makes you do math. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Clock watching. Yeah. yeah, totally. I was thinking about that too, as you were saying it, clock watching is something that um, is really not helpful. Some people are like, oh, but sometimes I calculate. Nope. Don't look like, don't look at the clock. I, that was a habit for myself that I really had to break. Uh, and I, it got to the point where like, okay, even if it's going to be five minutes, my alarm, just don't look at it, <laughs> roll over. Uh, and that's something that I bring up often to people, especially with those 2 a.m. wake ups. They're like, and then I think about it and then I wake up again at three and then I wake up again at four. And yeah, um, avoid if you I don't have an alarm clock in my room anymore um, or I don't have like a light up, a light up clock. Because, again, the light can impact 
Um, so, you know, it would take a lot of effort for me to like reach over and like, look at what is it, what time it is. So I, that's a big one. Yeah. And I think stretching is great. I think that's a really good, um, tool as well. One of the things I wanted to ask you about Gabby, that we, um, I know at South Metro, we talked about sleep number beds. I know that we've purchased a lot of sleep number beds. Um, I have a sleep number bed at home. I, you know, my personal preference that give her, I can take it or leave it. Um, we've tried a number we've tried memory foams. We've tried all sorts of things at the stations. Um, one thing we haven't tried that my husband's department always had is double beds or full size beds because we're not kids. We're actually adults. We act like kids, but we actually have the body size of adults and we sleep in kids' beds. We sleep in twin size beds. And I noticed um, after I got married that I would still sleep in this little one and a half foot section of my queen bed because right on the edge, because that's where I had been sleeping, right? And that's where I sleep still after 25 years of sleeping in a twin bed at work. And my husband sleeps in the middle of the bed because he sleeps on a on a full size bed at work, and that's where he sleeps. <laughs> so um, I just think it's interesting because I'm not a huge person, but a majority of the people that we work with are quite large human beings. They're big, they're muscular, and they're sleeping in these little teeny tiny beds. And we've never discussed why do we have three beds in some of our stations for one bedroom so that each shift has their own bed versus just having a nice full-size bed for a grown-up person. Have we ever thought of that? Or have you thought of that? And your thoughts, <laughs> please. <laughs> you know, I have not thought about that a ton. I think that's a great thing to consider. Uh, I'm curious too, on if there's any literature on how sleep size is gonna impact, or like, the size of the bed is going to impact sleep quality. Um, I can imagine it does um, because if you're worried about falling off the side of the bed, if you're hanging off, at, you know, like your limbs are, I know for me, I'm five ten, and uh, there are some beds that my toes hang off and it's not the most comfortable. <laughs> um, so that's kind of like running in the back of your mind as that's, as that's happening. Um, I think there's some older literature on, you know, people not enjoying their sleep as much when they're sleeping on smaller beds. Uh, so that, you know, that could impact it. Um, Lisa, did you have um, at Oakland Fire, did you have twin size, twins? Or? Twin size. And a lot of people would go buy their own beds, especially officers, the full size. But then when the inspection time came around, they put them back and then... <laughs> Um, to the twin size bed, but I agree because I mean, you do, you get customized. I mean, you really can't turn around on the twin size bed a lot. You're just like, you know. Well, I can think about like Gabby said, falling off or you hit the wall if it's, if it happens to be against the wall. the wall. If you're, especially if you're a rover, you don't know what side of the bed to get out of. Um, but if I, if I were to bump my knees in the wall, the first thing I would think of was, I'm not that big. So imagine what my crew is doing to, you know, is so I just, it, it's, it's been maddening for many, many years to me, why we don't just get larger beds. And then when I went to my husband's department and saw a full size bed, I thought, 
like there's one thing your department does better than ours. <laughs> <laughs> um, going back a little bit, Heidi, you were talking about when you go on calls and you come back and you um, debrief and stuff, but just like the normal call you go on, like just a normal EMS call that's really not a really, I mean, drastic call. And you come back and a lot of people will be like, and I think we kind of hit on this a little bit. It's like two, three in the morning and people are like, oh, I'm up the rest of the night now because you just can't fall back to sleep. And um, I, I'm, that's why I really commend you guys, your department for doing this, because I don't know how many times you'd come back and they just stay up the rest of the night from three o'clock in the morning to it was time to, for somebody to come in so they can go home because they're like, well, I know I can't fall back to sleep. I think, Lisa, some part of part of the debriefing is not necessarily always the psychological part of it, but it's the closure to the call, right? The call's done, so check mark. So with your your average EMS call or your average fire alarm, um, that's not necessarily getting us. You know, a lot of fire alarms you end up walking around a lot. You get a good workout, Um, but still coming back to the station and putting your gear back in service and getting the medic back in service. And even for the medics that may be dictating their calls, we dictate, um, or for me, at least doing part of my fire alarm report or EMS report um, to add some more closure to it and to give myself that opportunity just to kind of step back down into a relaxed, into a more relaxed state was good. But then there's times where I sit down and, and, and granted, again, you're sitting at a computer, so they have the blue light situation. Um, but there's times where I sit down to do my report and I'm like, oh, no, I'm tired. And yeah. so I go back to bed. Um, but there are also times where I would go back to bed um, and and realize, no, I need to write this up. So getting up and just closing the call for the, you know, for that period of time was helpful for me. Yeah. And with that, I think routine in general can be really helpful like, okay, when I, when I get back to the station, I will, you know, clear this up, like, you know, clean up what I need to do for the medics dictate the report. And then, and then I'll listen to a 10 minute meditation and, uh, and, you know, then I'll get in bed, or then I'll, you know, wash my face, like whatever it might be, like building a routine that can be, uh, that can really trigger that rhythm to be like, okay, it's time to get back to sleep. Uh, is I think is important to have not only like that station routine, that like nighttime call routine, but also the routine at home and, and sticking with it as much as possible. Uh, I actually had someone today who had one of those EEG patterns that can be really impactful for sleep onset. They, they, they will ruminate and get stuck on things. And I asked them, Oh, do you struggle with this at all? And he was like, no, but I've had the same routine since I was a kid and it, it works. So like that, we talked a little bit about that psychological conditioning when it comes to sleep anxiety and, and the self-talk, we can also do it in a way that is productive. So understanding, okay, we're going to turn the lights down. We're going to get into this routine. We're going to do these things that can help. I'm going to do some pace breathing and or progressive muscle relaxation and relax my body um, to help, you know, start to recover can be really a helpful way to, to frame that and, you know, say as much as we can, you know, same thing every time. So what about naps? Do they help increase sleeping? Yeah. So naps are a great topic. Um, Napping is something that 
in general in the literature can be really beneficial. Um, the recommendation is typically, you know, not sleeping super late in the day to where it's going to impact that sleep pressure and, and the circadian rhythm overall. Um, but, you know, midday, morning, doing, you know, a REM cycle or two, so not much longer than, than three hours, um, and helping to re-regulate with those naps. Uh, the other thing, you know, that I hear a lot of the time from people when they come in to see me is, I can't nap. My brain is not shut off. I don't know how to do that anymore. Like, I come home and I just need, like, I have time to relax on my day one. And since we, since South Metro has um, 4896, but that day one of the four day, uh, you know, and I just can't do it. So um, that, that has been a goal for some folks in neurofeedback, and we've done well with that. But one of the other options that can help with that relaxation and restoration is uh, some non-sleep deep rest scripts. And this is a kind of, well, fairly new in some of the sleep literature and the recovery literature. And this, this idea of non-sleep deep rest is that we're not really going through the stages of sleep, uh, but we are allowing the brain to relax enough that we are you know, consolidating information and restoring those you know, more active aspects of our brain. Um, some of the data that has looked at you know, a, ta a learning task and then doing non-sleep deep rest, people are actually more inclined to remember that information that they learned before. Uh, so non-sleep deep rest, NSDR, as it's uh, commonly, commonly referred to, can be a really good way to support and recover the brain uh, when maybe napping isn't doesn't feel attainable uh, but in general like restoring with naps and i had talked to julie the other day too about like having conversations with with partners um you know significant others about you know this is what we're required to do at work and like day one it, you know we're sleep deprived this is going on like and talking about that routine not not only for people with, who are going home to families and significant others and what that can look like and be supportive, but also just having a routine for people who are coming off shift and, and returning to the home environment. What are you doing to allow your brain to shift from work mode, which is usually 10 out of 10, um, into home mode, which is, you know, anywhere from zero to 10, right? Uh, so having those conversations and, and thinking about that routine I think can be really important as well. And if there's an opportunity in that routine for a nap, I think it's a great idea um, or some NSDR. So can you explain the why of sleep hygiene? Yeah. Um, when it comes to, you know, these sleep hygiene recommendations that we've really peppered throughout this conversation, it really does boil down to how are we regulating and keeping our circadian rhythm regulated? Um, are we going against this natural process or are we supporting it and building it up? So when we give these recommendations, like keep your room dark and quiet, uh, keep your room cool. We I, I talked very briefly at the top of this about temperature, but um, if our room is warmer, it's going to trigger our body to wake up. Um, and if our room is cooler, it's going to allow us to, to go to sleep. So the ideal temp usually is about 67 um, and that's not only the ideal temperature for restorative uh, 
that restorative slow way of sleep, but can, it can also help promote other restoration processes in the body. So, um, you know, when we go to sleep around that, that 66, 67, uh, and when we wake up, uh, we'll want warmer temperatures. So it, it really does boil down to, are we going in line with what our natural circadian rhythm wants and needs? Um, and if we're fighting that, we're likely impacting our, our sleep. So we sometimes hear that a lack of sleep can have an impact on our immune system. Do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah. So with sleep, this also gets into the relationship between stress and sleep. And when we're more stressed, we're not going to sleep as well. When we're not sleeping well, then we also tend to get more stressed. So it really can be this uh, evil cycle. Um, and when our body is undergoing more stress, we, we tend to, um, we tend to not be able to fight off, you know, infections as well. Our immune system is a little bit more compromised. Um, and when we do get good sleep, when we're able to get through those stages of sleep uh, in a high quality and quantity, then our body is going to recover from a physical standpoint as well. And you think about, you know, sleep in athletes, for example, and, you know, first responders, firefighters, occupational athletes, uh, and, in order to recover from a hard workout, in order to mentally recover from a cognitive stressor, like we need that sleep. And it's similar for maintaining a level of health that allows us to participate in society, um, but also do our jobs. Uh, so, you know, that that is integrated with stress and sleep and all of that. Um, so Heidi, it's important that fire departments recognize the importance of sleep. What are some things that departments should provide that are conductive, conducive to real rest? And we talked about it a little bit, like maybe the beds. And I mean, I know um, you talked about the design of fire stations. I know some um, stations in in this area where I live, they have now the um, in the rooms that if it's a um, engine gets a different call in the truck, so they know the engine's sleeping over here, the truck's sleeping over there. So it's not going to, the tones aren't going to go off where the truck people are sleeping, just where the engine people are sleeping, things to that nature. It'll help people not wake up. I mean, I know as a chief, if the engine, anytime somebody got a call, the lights came on in the chief's room and it was like, okay. And you'd wake up because you didn't know who it was for because there was different tones and you had to listen to the tone and stuff. So, yeah. And I think we're, we're, we're um, still working on that um, as far as, um, station design, but also just implementing that into older stations, um, whether it's a first-in type system um, where we can block off um, each room. Um, unfortunately, you know, in some stations, they still, the tones will still go off in the hallways um, or the lights will go off in the hallways in a different way that maybe will seep in through the, through the um, bunk rooms. Um, and, and, you know, when you look at the fire service in general over the United States, we have to keep in mind that there are people that are still sleeping in full on joint bunk rooms. Right. So um, so how do we address that with everybody? But I think that when we're looking at the future um, and what best practices would be, would be to try to separate um, the units and the, and the waking up of individuals on each individual unit um, and try to, to have different types of tones that are 
um, still able to wake people, but maybe not so abruptly. We had gone through a period of time about 15 years ago at our department where we had this nice ramping up of a tone. And it was so nice. It really, um, we implemented red lights in the rooms and and the slow ramping of the tone. I don't know what happened to those, but they're gone. Um, and But it was it was actually really nice because you woke up, but you didn't wake up in this flight, fight or flight mechanism. So um, tones, isolating the lights and the tones. Um, I do think that getting away from this is how we've always done things with your um, with what your sleep practices are in the stations. So when a when a crew is up all night, if I know my medic unit, you know, and the officers. Each officer is a little different. I tried to stay pretty cognizant of what my medic unit was doing separate from us. Um, but, you know, easy as just me waking up in, in the morning and looking at what calls they ran. But allowing them and setting those expectations earlier that if, if you guys are up all night, I expect that you are sleeping until this time or you have training at 10. I will make sure that you're up by 10. Um, allowing that getting out of our our egos and allowing these people the rest that they deserve. Um, and then also allowing time for naps. I was a big person that I, I was totally okay with everybody napping at, at any time. I preferred that they did it in their bedrooms um, for a number of reasons. One, they don't get as easily interrupted or stressed out about if the chief walks in. But two, it shows that they do need rest and their rest is going to be better particularly if they end up in in one of those non-sleep cycles and they're just actually resting. Um, Laying down for 15 minutes is so restorative um, if you can't sleep. So so those are just setting an expectation as an officer in your station, but being allowed to do that by your battalion chiefs and by your department is critical. Um, You know, not everybody can do new beds can do the ramping of the tones. Not everybody can afford to put blackout curtains. Um, But I think we should all be moving towards that. And particularly when we, if we build that into station design, you know, another thing that we, we talked about temperature, but we didn't talk about commercial HVAC systems and they're quite noisy. Um, So, but there's not a lot we can do about that, but I think, I think there is. You know, I think there's different types of heating and cooling systems that can be less invasive to our sleep. Um, so, you know, we talked about last session, we talked about mental health and and we've talked briefly about how, how sleep can um, disrupt our mental health. We need to continue to be proactive with the future of our firefighters and the longevity of keeping them with us on the job and then after. Thanks, Heidi. Um, This was some really great information. I actually learned a lot about sleep and I appreciate that. So we're just about out of time. So I wanna thank each guest for being a part of the radio show. Thank you to Fire Engineering again. Um, Thanks to all the listeners and members of Women in Fire. And I wanna remind everybody to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and to check out our website, Women in Fire. And we have an international conference coming up in September, the week of the 11th in San Diego. So check that out as well. And thank you for everybody.
like a trusted turnout jacket you've had for years. Flex 7 outer shell fabric delivers a perfectly broken in feel on the very first wear. Flexible, comfortable, and powered with the strength of enforced technology, Flex 7 outer shell fabric is made to move. To learn more, visit tenkatafabrics.com slash flex7. Flex 7, powered by enforced technology. Only from Tenkata Protective Fabrics.